Kaylee, did you know that the distance from Akragana to Baltimore, Maryland is 4,564 nautical miles? I did not know that, but I do believe that an extradition flight from Ghana to the U.S. is <laughs> probably going to fill a lot longer than that. Yeah, no, no, no doubt. So uh, we have a great one to talk about today. Ni- Nigerian national Olusegun Simpson Adejorin. He was arrested in Ghana, uh, and now he's facing U.S. federal charges. And he's uh, been alleged to have committed $7.5 million on a business email compromise involving two charitable organizations here in the States. Right. Did this did this headline come out of like 2001? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, it, this, this stuff has been going on for as long as computers were connected to one another, but the arrests... The arrests are new. This is awesome. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think a lot had to come together. So it's the FBI's Baltimore field office. Um, they led the effort, but they had cooperation from uh, the FBI's legal attache in Accra, Ghana. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also the Republic of Ghana has a pretty sophisticated economic and organized crime office, uh, an office of the attorney general and a ministry of justice. Uh, so mm-hmm. – they, they kind of all collaborated together to do something that I think for a lot of folks, even those who are pretty active in this space, didn't think this this happened. Yeah. Right? It didn't. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about this scheme. Um, how how does it happen that you know, there's two victim organizations in the state, right? You've got somebody in Ghana who pretends to be at least one of the organizations who have business email compromise. Mm-hmm. How, how do you think, I mean, we're speculating now, but how, how does somebody like this choose their target? How does the target? I, I think it comes down to, um, well, there's a lot of factors. Um, the amount of information that the uh, criminal hacker can find online, especially through open source um, just Google searches, social media, the company's website, LinkedIn, especially in this yeah. case, um, since he was posing as people from the the organizations. Um, a lot of times it, it's hard to put into words, but you can sort of tell what someone's like an organization security culture might be like, uh, depending on the behaviors of their employees or how their employees present themselves <laughs> online. Um, so that could factor into it as well. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to wait for the trial probably to see what really happened here. But yeah. it's a fascinating story. I mean, from the indictment, which, again, are just all allegations at this point, it looks like he um, he's alleged to have gotten the credentials of both mm-hmm. victim one and victim two. And I think victim one was a charitable organization that provided mm-hmm. investment services to the other charitable organization. So mm-hmm. he pretends to be both sides here. Yeah. And it looks like from the indictment, there were controls. There was a, for a $10,000 or above um, transfer withdrawal, you needed one of several individuals to be authorized at, at victim one. And so mm-hmm. the, the defendant in, in the case gets the credentials of employees and just pretends to be all these people uh, yeah. on all the sides of the control. Yeah, it's it was it was a really sophisticated attack. I mean, again, we'll have to wait and see, but it sounds like he was acting alone, which is even more impressive. And I I imagine that 
He used phishing emails, uh, convinced people they needed to log in for some reason, maybe change their password, used, uh, I think it even said that he had gotten a script for credential stuffing. Um, And (laughs) yeah, and then he was basically just like lurking in the inboxes of these people and hiding the emails that were coming in from the actual people he was posing as. It's very wild. <laughs> well, this is this is also a cool. So this um, the Department of Justice and the U.S. Attorney's Office write up on this. Is some of the press mentions this legal attaché job that the FBI agent had in mm-hmm. um, in in Ghana, and it, I'm just going to say it's one of the coolest jobs. So if there's anybody out there who's interested in cybersecurity, law enforcement, any of the things that we talk about on the podcast, the legal attaché it, it is essentially somebody from the U.S. government who was in the FBI. Who then goes and lives essentially as as a as a U.S. government employee in, in a foreign country, almost like mm-hmm. a diplomat, mm-hmm. and who just helps solve crimes that have some impact on the U.S. or on U.S. citizens, and they get connected with local law enforcement. They're um, helping uh, either investigate U.S.-based crimes or they're um, helping. You know, I, I think there's back and forth too in terms of cooperation with. Um, if the Ghanaian government or, or the foreign government is using is, is investigating U.S.-based crimes too, but they're really hard to get, but they're extremely, extremely cool. Um, I had the the pleasure when I was an assistant U.S. attorney to work with a few of them uh, oh, cool. in, in Europe. And invariably, like someone would be like, who's going to call the, the legat? That's what they would call them. And I'd be oh, like, yeah. and we'd all volunteer, like, oh, I want to talk to her. She's, <laughs> You know what did you ha- what did you have for breakfast? Like, like just tell me about your adventures. You know, and we're we're sitting in the old crumbling courthouse in, in Trenton, New Jersey, you know, on a rainy day, and we're talking to somebody in Switzerland. You know, who's just came off the ski slopes. But yeah. it's a um, it's an absolutely fun job. So if there's anybody's interested in that, you get to do really cool prosecutions like this. But uh, nice job to the to the folks in Ghana and the folks in the U.S. for for bringing these charges. And let's see what what happens uh, yeah. after that. I mean. Seven and a half million is nothing to shake shake a stick at. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, and it's also a great deterrence too. Because I mean, there are we we know we've talked about on the on the cast. I mean, uh, thirty, forty, fifty million dollar ransomware schemes out there, right? So if they're mm-hmm. willing to do this and they do it successfully for seven and yeah. a half million, again, it's a lot of money, but it's not touching some of the bigger ones. Yeah, you know, if you're a criminal scheme, uh, and it's also a lot easier for law enforcement to investigate multi-party schemes because mm. there's just more evidence to collect. If it's just mm, one yeah. dude or, or a smaller organization, it can be harder. So uh, this doesn't bode well for the for the big fish who are out there. There could be a lot of other sealed indictments for mm-hmm. uh, that made that we're speculating, but that could be out there. Yep. All right. Well, um, I'm your host, Jack Clabby, a cybersecurity attorney at Carlton Fields, PA in Tampa, Florida. And with me, as always, is Kaylee Melton. Kaylee's the vice president of U.S. remote publishing teams at Know Before. We're going to take a short break, but after that, we're going to chat with our guest today, Dr. Diana Burley. She's the vice provost for research and innovation at American University. She's also a professor of public administration and policy and a professor of information technology and analytics. She wears many hats. She's going to talk us through what she's up to and some advice for um, companies and, and those looking for a cybersecurity career when we get back. 
Welcome to No Password Required, a monthly conversation that introduces you to some of the top talent in the world of cybersecurity. Welcome back. Our guest today is Dr. Diana Burley. Dr. Burley, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. Could you give us a little bit of background on your career uh, and how it led you to American University and then some of the things you do uh, at American? Sure. Um, So it really is a story of two different tracks. So one track is my cybersecurity research and and I've been conducting cybersecurity research, particularly focused on workforce and education issues for the better part of 30 years. Um, But as a part of that, I started to dabble in administration. Um, At uh, my previous institution, I ran a research institute and uh, was a program director and and associate dean and and department chair. And so at American, uh, I am the vice provost for research and innovation. So I've taken on a primarily administrative role. but, um, But part of what led me to American was that there was a focus across the university on security and cybersecurity as a component of that. So I felt like my area of expertise also blended well with what the university was looking for in terms of content. Um, But my job as a a vice provost for research is really to to shepherd the entire research enterprise, everything from compliance um, to uh, helping faculty members develop and submit proposals for externally sponsored work, uh, helping to shape the research mission of the university, branding, um, et cetera. So it's really a very broad um, range of activities. And Dr. Burley, g- going back a little further, where did your interest, your academic interest, your professional interest in cybersecurity, how did that evolve? And, and then how did you get the training uh, to, to come to your current role? Yeah, so I went to Carnegie Mellon for graduate study. And so in some ways, you could say everybody there is doing something related to to computers, (laughs) even the actors. Um, But my my interest was always in the interface between technology and people uh, and and helping to understand how people would interact and engage with that technology and really thinking about not the mainstream, the people who were very excited, um, but the other people, people who perhaps were not excited or were unaware or didn't understand or just wanted to um, have more insight into how they would engage with the technology. And so that's really where everything started for me, was putting those two things together. And it it sort of took a natural um natural turn towards security because I started looking at questions around securing individuals' data. Uh, and and my, my initial research was on, you know, this is back in the 90s. Um, so it was when everybody was just discovering the internet and the web and governments were starting to put services online for citizens. And, um, and so that's where my, my, work started and, and how it blended together on um, people and technology. Yeah, but there was a lot of like tone deaf stuff happening early. I know where it was like a, a, a apply for government assistance online and people are like, what? Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that doesn't compute, right? Exactly. Uh, or even students in school being asked to do projects on computers when they might not have access to 
something it, to that sort of thing. Right. So, so what is American University's role now? Like, how do you see it in your current role in terms of educating policymakers and their staff? Like, is there outward um, facing work that American University is doing? Yes. So, so both inward and outward. Uh, so when you think about the students, the traditional students, whether undergraduate or graduate, we do a lot of work in helping future leaders Right. And making sure that we are giving them a breadth of of understanding of how technology does and will continue to play a role in giving them that foundation. Um, But in addition to that, we do go outside and we work with leaders around the country to help um, strengthen their insight and their their knowledge of technology and just the kinds of questions that they ought to be thinking about um, so that when they are developing policies, uh, that they're developing policies that are designed to achieve what they intend for those policies to achieve, but also so that they are aware of perhaps unintended consequences that might arise um, from those. So we do everything from um, executive education in a more formal sense, where we, we have cohorts of, of executives, policymakers come in, um, but also in a, in a less formal sense where we do a lot of convenings. Uh, and bringing people together with thought leaders and experts to have conversations around these kinds of topics to create networks uh, so that people can, even if they don't have a question at the moment, they know how to reach out and and to whom to reach out when something comes up. I have a a question. So I'm, I'm not super familiar with that world. Is this unique to American? Um, well, so I will say that, that other places certainly do this kind of work. I like to think that we are a leader um, in, in it, but certainly there are other institutions that are focused. I mean, there are schools of public affairs and public policy around the country, and they all engage in some, some way. Um, but at American, very much, very much like what I said about Carnegie Mellon, right? Everybody kind of technology is in the air and in the water. So at American, I would say policy is in the air and in the water. And so across the university, uh, regardless of the discipline, regardless of the area of focus, our faculty members, our researchers are very interested in how they can help to shape and inform um, public policy and and, uh, societal uh, change. And so that's, uh, I think, a strength of the university. And that's one of the things that we focus very much on. Um, you know, how do we translate the research that we are conducting into um, into forms that allow for more data-driven policy development? That is uh, a particular emphasis of the university. And um, and we're very proud of, of being a leading voice in, in that space. A lot of the focus, um, Dr. Burley, of not just of his podcast, but of the work of, of Cyber Florida here is on workforce readiness and preparing a cyber workforce. You know, in your research or the work at, at AU, you know, are, are there any misconceptions out there about the cybersecurity workforce or, or, or learnings that you could share with us? I think it depends. So, yes, depends on who you ask. Um, you know, I, I think that you know, the idea that we do not have educational programs that are uh, sufficiently structured and the content is is there, that is a myth. We do have really excellent programs. Cyber Florida is is an example of that. Uh, And so 
So the content is there. Um, the programs are there. And frankly, I believe that the, the students and the people are yeah. there. I think that part of the challenge is that there can be a mismatch um, between what we say we're looking for and where we go to, to look for it. Um, but the, the raw material on both the human side in terms of students to go into the field uh, and content to develop them for the field, I, I believe that is the it's funny, a comment you made a moment ago about at Carnegie Mellon, the, act, the actors, maybe not as much, right? But it's funny how even now, if you think about what like a, an average theater kid in the 90s would know about computers versus today, where so much of what's happening is creating things on YouTube or TikTok, right. when now an actor you know, wanting to do comedy skits or something has access and knows more about uploading things to the cloud and... I think that it's some, while some people think that a career in cybersecurity is further away, there is a basic level of training now that many students coming to college or even in the first rung of a federal workforce, they've got more than they think they do. Absolutely. I mean, you know, we, we talk about digital natives, those, those children, young adults who have grown up with technology in their hands from the crib, right? And so they, they have a fundamental, um, not necessarily complete understanding, but at least a fundamental comfort level so that, and that's really step one, is having the level of comfort to be able to explore what the technology can do for you. Um, but it also means that we as academic leaders and academic institutions need to ensure that there is a, a foundational level of digital literacy for students, regardless of the field that they go into. And I would say that some of the basic principles of cybersecurity fit into those, those basic foundational digital, digital literacy um, skills and concepts, right? They need to have that base understanding because regardless of the field that you go into just as a member of society in today's world and certainly tomorrow's, you will be interfacing with technology. And it's important that you understand um, what you're doing and, and what the implications of that are and how to protect yourself and how to protect your data um, while you engage. I just want to ask about re retention in the academic environment of sort of skilled members of the group, right? So you've, you've got someone who has started on an academic path, maybe doesn't have tenured professor role, but is doing really interesting research. It, given what that person knows, isn't she, there's got to be the temptation to go into the private sector or even in a government role. Mm -hmm. How do you work with someone like that to, to keep them on an academic path when the money or, or the influence there is so close, particularly at a place like AU that's in Washington, D.C. Yeah. Yeah. So this is not a problem that's unique to okay. cybersecurity. But, you know, I want to say that at the outset, there have always been and will always be career fields that um, mean that you can make more money if you go into the private sector versus if you stay within the academy. And so so trying to compete on that topic, you know, on the, in that vein doesn't make sense. I think what makes more sense is to say, here are the reasons why 
you should engage or can engage or hear the benefits of engaging as a university faculty member, whether full-time, part-time, whatever that relationship looks like. Um, Because as a researcher at a university, as a faculty member at a university, you have some unique opportunities. You have unique opportunities to shape and touch the lives of individuals who are moving forward into professions, right? And and in the purest sense, and I I mean that, you know, in terms of helping foster uh, creativity and curiosity and critical thinking and, right? And so you have that opportunity. And you also, as a researcher in an academic environment, you're creating new knowledge. And to me, and, and this, of course, is my bias, what is better than that, right? I mean, and so to, to be in a position where you are able to explore the questions and to take a step back, right? And I often work with, with colleagues in industry and government who are on the front lines dealing with problems every day, and they don't have the luxury of being able to take that step back and truly investigate the challenges and think about it. Uh, and, and, but I do and academics do. And so I think that it becomes a, a nice partnership because I understand the constraints that they have. They understand the constraints that I have, and we can work collaboratively to advance um, along the way. Um, but it also means that relationships are not single, you know, there's not one way for somebody to engage at a university. And so even if, you decide that a full-time relationship is not right for you. There are other ways to engage and to continue to, to foster the creation of new knowledge and, and shaping um, the future of the workforce. In your own research, I, I know you've looked a lot at human behavior. Uh, mm-hmm. you, do you have like a universal appreciation? Are, are there some stories that have stood out to you that you've encountered in your research? specific stories or specific perspectives about human behavior and its interaction with cybersecurity? Yes. I, I, you know, I hesitate because I love people, right? And so I find that, that all of the stories are interesting in, for some reason or another, um, and in some way, but I guess one thing that stands out is in working with companies years ago, when there was this first wave of, Here's the how you should be protecting your own security of devices, right? And, okay. and, and so there was a, a real um, struggle, tug of war in trying to get individuals to change their behavior and do certain things with with devices or not do certain things, like not go into certain websites or um, to dial into the the corporate network using a VPN as opposed to not, right? Before it was mandatory to do, and we had some of these technical constraints. And one of the revelations from working with the, the employees and trying to uncover how we could help to shift their behavior was the recognition that while this device, this laptop, this cell phone, this BlackBerry at the time <laughs> might have been given to me by my company, I very much see it as mine, right? It is my device. And there is a resistance to to individuals saying, I'm going to follow what you tell me to do with my device, even though from the company side, from the organization side, they're saying it's not your device. It's our device that we have 
allowed you to use so that you can do work for us. But, you know, the old adage, possession is nine tenths of the law or what, you know, whatever it is. So for employees, because they had that laptop or that Blackberry or that, right, they felt like, you know what, it's mine. And so I am going to behave the way that I want to. And so part of helping the company shift the behavior because it really was in the best interest of everyone for them to do these, you know, take these, these security measures. There had to first be a recognition that the way that the employees saw the situation and the way that the company representatives saw the situation was different. You have to accept that as baseline because once you accept that, you can then begin to develop strategies that address the reality of the situation as opposed to what you would like the reality to be. <laughs> That's funny because, right, the, the, now it's like the bring your own device policies that have been in place for 10 years. It's right. literally your own device, the, the three right. words in there is, right. I brought that- it from home. Yeah, don't tell me what to do with it. <laughs> that's right. And that's the way it was even when we weren't, you know, even when it wasn't <laughs> your device. And and even now, I mean, I can remember years ago having a giving a talk at um, in the Department of the Navy and it was conversations around devices and and who owns them and how do we secure them and what if it's a personal device and and then it starts to go into questions of well what if it's um a device that's implanted, right? It started with Apple watches. You remember all of those conversations, yeah. right? But, but then it goes beyond that and says, well, what about a device that's actually implanted in a person's body, mm-hmm. right? Oh my goodness. How do we begin to wrestle with those questions? And, and it, all, it all comes back to human behavior and how people, from whatever their vantage point is, how they see the device and how they see who has the authority to make decisions about the use of that device and and have that control, right? And perception is reality. And just because I think it's good for you doesn't mean that you think it's good for you. And so it becomes a quite end because in some situations, Okay, if I decide it's not good for me and I don't do it, I'm only putting myself in harm's way. Well, that's not the case with Mm -hmm. our networks, right? And Mm -hmm. so it becomes an educational process and one that has to start with a recognition and a respect for people's perspectives, because that's when you can then begin to work to shape behavior. It's like you've been given a set of keys and you've got the key to the office building, the key to the lunchroom, the key to your office, the key to the filing cabinet. And then you also put on that same keychain, the key to your apartment, key to your car. Yes. They're all mixed in together. Mm-hmm. And you think of it as your keychain, but you're really, That's right. it's only your keychain in part. What, right. what are some strategies? Like when you meet with the Department of the Navy or you meet with a private employer, mm-hmm. you know, what are some strategies that you found that are effective in get one, getting them to partner with you, but two, to, to, to breaking through both the leadership there and to folks who are sort of on the line, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, stories are the best way, right? Because leaders, you, you can't go in and talk to an admiral and tell the admiral that people aren't going to listen to what 
he or she has to play. <laughs> work that way. <laughs> Even in the best of circumstances, it just doesn't work that way. And so, um, you know, I find that storytelling is a very powerful tool uh, and a story that both touches on something related to the people that you're trying to influence, but also a story that relates to you and what you or how you see the world and how that leader might see the world um, because Mm. it makes it real to them. Mm. And then they can start to accept that it may not, that the directive may not work exactly the way they intended for it to work, that resistance isn't, resistance isn't always about defiance. And it's not about ignorance and it's not about, right. I mean, there are different reasons why people resist and understanding that. And it's often helpful to tell stories that demonstrate why somebody might have an exhibit resistance that you then, and and oftentimes I will take it away from a technology, right. I'll I'll talk about something else Mm. and then bring it back. Um, to the technology space and and find that that is a a good way of getting in um, regardless of the group that I'm speaking. I'm um, I'm in cybersecurity education for adults mostly. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's something, part of that is something that I've always kept as like my own maxim of making sure that anything I'm teaching is having that personal connection because that's Mm -hmm. the way you're going to get people to really connect with it. Mm -hmm. Um, But adding that extra bit that that you add of adding something of yourself in there as well, I think that's really beautiful. And um, I can see how that would help someone trust as well, whatever you were saying, because if you're sharing something, you're obviously putting yourself subconsciously in a vulnerable space. Like this is who I am. So I I really love that. Thank you. Yeah. People, it resonates with people, right? You have to to engage with people as people. And and Mm -hmm. I think sometimes, sometimes we get so caught up in the mission, even a, a, you know, an admirable mission, a good mission, but sometimes we get so caught up in the mission or so caught up in our role or so caught up in in the 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 importance of uh, getting it right that we forget that at its core we're people and we're hmm. people talking to other people and and that to me it takes more time it it in many ways takes more effort right mm-hmm. because you have to actually listen. You can't resonate, you know, something that you say can't resonate, (laughs) you don't know anything about them, right? So you have to actually engage with them to understand, uh, and and that can take more time. And and it it is a delicate balancing act because, you know, I'm certainly not going to sit here and say, you have all the time in the world, right? I mean, there are time pressures. And and so, (laughs) you know, as an academic, people are like, oh, you don't think there are any time pressures. No, no, there are time pressures. There are constraints. There are resource constraints, time constraints, personnel constraints that we all have to work within. But within those constraints, within that context, you want to do what you can to engage people uh, in a way that that allows them, gives them permission to also be vulnerable and also um, 
because then you can, they will also engage with you and then you can move forward together. Dr. Burley, you know, I know one of the, the big projects that you're working on in this space is the Cyber Unicorn Project. Mm-hmm. Can you can you tell us a little bit about, about what that is? Sure. So, you know, for, for many years, there have been anecdotal complaints whenever security people are together and uh, that the people coming into the field don't have all of their requirements, right? They, they just can't meet all my requirements. And I don't understand what are the universities doing? They're not, they're not putting people in the right places and they don't have the requirements. And on the flip side, conversations I've had with so many individuals who want to join the cybersecurity workforce, who want to get in, who say, I want to get in. You tell me that there are all these jobs available, that the need is so great. But when I look at what are purported to be entry level positions, I see a list of requirements that it's impossible for me as somebody with no experience to meet. Right. And so we have on the one hand people saying I need entry level people, but I want them to have 10 years of experience on some tool or five years of experience on a tool. And then on the other hand, we have individuals who want to join the workforce, want to enter, and they're being told, come, come, come. And then when they see jobs, they can't qualify, right? So, So there is a mismatch. And so that's what... I and my team call this cyber unicorn challenge, right? It's the <laughs> cyber unicorn. Um, and, and so that's what the project is all about. It's about trying to understand first to, to get some data around it, because, you know, while it has anecdotally been said on both sides for, for many years, there's not been a systematic collection of data to show this, right? There's been anecdotal data. So, so part one is just getting some data to say, yes, this, this challenge actually does exist. There really wow. is um, a search for cyber unicorns. But then to take that next step and to say, why? Why is it that, um, that, that the requirements begin to get inflated and how, because once we understand why, you know, and it goes back to you, you're always here the same thing for me. If you understand the essence of why you can develop solutions that will address the challenge, right? Mm. Whether we're talking about people or the people who develop position descriptions, right? And so the question is why? So what we're doing right now is we're actually conducting interviews with uh, HR managers who are responsible for putting position descriptions together, whether they, and recognizing that they don't do it alone, right? They work with the, the subject matter leaders, but just to get an understanding of how these position descriptions become what they are and some essence of understanding why so that we can then put forward some suggestions as to how we can remedy this, this problem and stop searching for cyber uniforms. Dr. Brill, my, my wife is a chief people officer for an education technology company, and she talks about this issue in the abstract a lot, which is she'll get a input from an, an engineer or something about these are the 30 things we need the next person to have. And she's like, you don't have these things, right? You don't have, you don't have 20 of these things. What are you talking about? And, but um, 
and so I, I have started to see companies put, you know, when, when they put up job descriptions in the cyberspace, and I look at a fair amount of these when we do gap assessments for clients, I'll see, okay, well, what are you posting? You say, if you say there's an acknowledged gap, great. What are you, who are you actually looking for? And maybe one out of 10 will now contain a, a, a line or two that says, you know, um, women and uh, uh, minority uh, applicants or people of color applicants, mm-hmm. studies have shown that they are less likely to apply if they don't meet every single one of the criteria listed. We want to let you know that these are recommendations, not – so like that was I – mean, I've started to see that. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, that may be a result of what you're doing, but that seems very powerful to me to try to address it by saying it explicitly. It's, again, 10% maybe anecdotally of the last 30 I've looked at. That that's that's good. I've started to see those kinds of statements as well. And, you know, that's that's the next step from that distinction between preferred and required qualifications. Right. And and the idea that if you meet the basic or the required qualifications, if you have some of the preferred ones, that's gravy on top, but you don't have to have them. Right. So that's the next iteration Um because there is there are many, many scientific studies. It is a known fact that um, women and <clears throat> members of underrepresented groups in those in particular fields just simply will not apply if they don't meet all of the if the, you know, if there are 50 things listed and I meet 48 of them. Oh, well, I'm not going to apply because these two are probably the two that they care about. Right. Versus mm-hmm. the reverse. Um where you have majority um, individuals, typically white males, who say, "Well, I meet two of the fifty. I'm not doing right." And so, so we are also because we do so much work to diversify the field, sometimes for altruistic reasons, and sometimes for practical reasons. Right? Half of the workforce, half of the population is is female, and. Mm-hmm. So if we need people, we have to figure out how to get them in. Um, We must recognize that we have to adjust the way that we are putting position descriptions out there because we are actually putting up unintentionally putting barriers up um, to to getting our workforce in the door. Has it been challenging? What, what has it been like to recruit HR professionals for this project? Are they on board with it? Do they resist? Do they have to get approvals? How, how does it work? All of the above. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so yes, they they sometimes they have to get approvals. Um, sometimes they resist, and you know, and when they do resist, we try to give them. We try to again understand why are you resisting and and. What assurances can we give you um, to get you to engage? And so if any HR professionals are listening to this podcast, please reach out. Um, <laughs> the data will be um, anonymized. There is no reference to specific individuals or um, departments or agencies or any of that. Um, and so it's really uh, just trying to get at the essence of the question. And, and so once we get into the interviews, I will say that once we get into the interviews, um, there's never been a, a situation where an, a, a, one of our interview subjects or participants has said, nope, stop. 
this this is not comfortable um, or had a negative um, thought or comment. Well, I won't say thought, but comment uh, at the end of of the process. And so we stand true to to what we say. And it really is harmless. Uh, And the questions are not about the nitty gritty details. They're really bigger picture types of questions. So if any HR professionals are listening, reach out. We would love to talk with you. If um, it, it, just to round this one out, I mean, I don't know what your time frame on it is, but when when you've gotten the research done and you've had a chance to analyze the results, is there an expectation that you would share those either with the participants or with the community at large? Absolutely. How would the results get out there? Absolutely. So yes, um, we we are hoping to be able to share sometime in the you know at least preliminary results sometimes right at the beginning uh, of February. But that depends if if we get a whole host of new individuals who want to interview, we will push, we will hold, and and conduct those interviews. Um, we will share with the interview participants, um, you know, first. Again, anonymously, they won't be able to tell who's who, but at least let them get some insight and and offer opportunities to have conversations, follow up conversations with them if they want that. Um, But then producing a report and making sure that this is insight that that we uh, can share with the with the whole community, because we do think that this is a problem that um, can and needs to be addressed. Mm. All right, well, we'll take a short break now, and when we return, we'll talk with Dr. Burley about our lifestyle polygraph. So everybody, please stay with us. You're listening to the No Password Required podcast. We cover cybersecurity and a lot of other stuff. Welcome back. As many of you know, the lifestyle polygraph is a test used by the federal government to determine if a person is worthy of learning some of our nation's most important secrets. Here on the podcast, we use this technique for only slightly lower stakes to determine whether our guest can join our fantasy cybersecurity squad. Dr. Burley, are you ready for the lifestyle polygraph? I am ready. Awesome. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Question one. Which of these do you look forward to more? The changing of the changing leaves of the fall or the cherry blossoms? Yeah, the leaves in the fall. <laughs> Love yeah. the cherry blossoms, but the leaves in the fall for sure. There's also less tourists, I think, in DC for the changing oh, leaves yeah. than there are for the cherry yeah. blossoms. And more <laughs> and it's distributed more, so you can go places that aren't <laughs> quite so crazy. It's uh in fact, as a as a Washingtonian, I don't go to the Tidal Basin. There are other secret places that have beautiful cherry blossoms that we don't tell the tourists about. So, <laughs> I I think the cherry blossoms were out for about a week or two, a couple of weeks, and yep. I lived in D.C. for four years at the beginning of my career. And uh, the pictures, though, we have of the of the thousand pictures we took during our four years in Washington D.C. 900 of them have cherry blossoms in them. It was like we only took <laughs> photographs of ourselves at DC for those eight total weeks that we were living there. Yeah, you which, <laughs> like, I think a couple of them are still up in the house, but who knows? But that is nice having – that's one of Florida's uh, – What there are a lot of really positive things about Florida, but we really don't get the four seasons. Not having the changing leaves mm-hmm. really does stink. Mm-hmm. I wish yeah. we had a little more of that down here. Yeah, I don't know if I could handle uh, like a palm tree Christmas. 
I'm not a big Christmas person, but it being very hot at Christmas is just weird to me. Yeah. <laughs> I have family in Florida. My my mother and daughter are there and uh they just talk about how many lights and you know people put up to to compensate for the fact that it's still warm and the flowers are still blooming in the palm <laughs> billowing in the breeze. So <laughs> All right. Question number two. Where are the secret cherry blossoms in Washington? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Number two. (laughs) What piece of advice would you give to all cybersecurity executives? Listen. Yeah. Listen to people, you know, really, it, it you have to take that step back. And again, I understand the pressures that everybody is under, truly. Um, but if you can just take that step back and listen to what is motivating people, it will help you as you are trying to mitigate risk, because that's really what cybersecurity is all about. It's about mitigating risk. And um and so it's important to to understand really where you are uh, so that you can be more effective um, in, in that process. This is not an official question for the for the um, lifestyle polygraph, but Dr. Brillick, as your career, you have a research career, yeah. and then over time you've taken more and more administrative responsibilities mm-hmm. on it. So you have sort of two parts of, of, of your professional career, among many other things, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. But how do you how do you um, Are you different as an administrator than you are as a researcher? Do you have to listen differently? Mm -hmm. Are there different parts of your personality that come to the front when you're leading versus researching? I don't think that I'm different. You're probably not the best person to ask. You probably need to ask the people that I interact (laughs) with. They have a different answer. But I don't think that I'm different, but I do think that each piece of me informs the other piece. No, I don't think that I would be as good at listening as an administrator if I wasn't a researcher who focused on that, right? And who who understands that because, you know, I'll give you an example, right? As an administrator, as a manager, you're often managing change in an organization, whether it's in personnel, you know, at, at AU right now, we're implementing a new ERP system, right? So there, there's always changes that you are, are managing through. My The insight that I have from being a researcher and, and helping companies and agencies understand how to uh, how to navigate through digital transformation, particularly in the cyber realm, but but even larger than that, has given me lessons that I then take advantage of as an administrator. So I, I think that, um, I hope that it informs that I'm the same person, but that the different pieces of me inform um, each other. Thank you. That's a very good answer. So number three, what would be the ultimate dream team for conquering escape rooms, whether it's a mix of attitudes, unique skill sets, or different collaborative strengths describe the perfect four person crew that you think would just smash an escape room. Oh boy. Um, <laughs> well, we need somebody who breaks rules and we need somebody who is firm against, you know, breaking rules, right? <laughs> well, 
like we need we need that yin yin and yang, right? We need the the counterbalance for everything. And so I, I'd want probably an artist or a musician um, because they're creative and they think in a in a non scientific necessarily way, right? And and mm-hmm. then a scientist because they think in that very linear way. Um, uh, and, and so I'd want these sort of these opposite counterbalances to each other. Um, but everybody also has to be fun because mm-hmm. if you're not having fun, what point really fun? You got to laugh through it all. <laughs> and that, that Dr. Billy, that's exactly why we have to have cybersecurity teams that don't all look exactly the same. Oh, there it, it we go. It can't all be right. It can't all be the same 15 males from MIT. It's got to be because they're all going to say, hey, I have an idea. That's a great idea. In fact, that's a really good idea. It can't just be the first. (laughs) Yeah. That's exactly right. You need to have these different perspectives and you need to have them where they all can push back against each other. Right. You know, that's that I think, too. It's not just about this is something people talk about diversity versus inclusion. And, and what's the difference, right? I can have a diverse team. But if the diverse team members do not feel empowered to contribute and engage, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Right? Because if I have an artist and a scientist, if I have a pessimist and an optimist, but only the one half of that, the scientist and the pessimist are the only two that feel empowered and the artist and the, and the optimist um, have been brought in, but they don't feel that they have the power to engage, then it doesn't matter that they're in the room. And so that's why it's so important that even as we think about diversifying teams, that we recognize that we also have to create a culture that um, makes people feel a sense of belonging in that room, in that team, around that table. Because once there is that comfort level, then they engage, then they feel safe, right? There is psychological safety to contribute and to share the ideas because their ideas are going to come out and sound very different mm-hmm. than the other ideas, but we need that, right? And, and so, um, so yes, we would have to, we'd have to have that, those counterbalance um, individuals and, and such in the room, but everybody would need to feel like they could contribute. I also want to use this opportunity for anyone who runs escape rooms who are listening to complain <laughs> about price inflation. Like when escape rooms first came out, it was like $5 a person. Now you need to reserve them in advance and it's like 40 bucks. Yeah. That's, that's it. That's all I'm going to say. I just, I feel very strongly about this. What used to be like the equivalent of going to the movies is now like going to Disney. Too, escape rooms are too expensive. All right. Off my Recovery. Heard it here first. We're covering the the issues that really matter here today. (laughs) All right. Question four. How do your insights into understanding the irrational behavior of others influence your own self-awareness? And can you share a personal experience where you've noticed yourself acting illogically despite your dedication to unraveling the mysteries of human behavior? (laughs) Well, what's, what's irrational to one person may be very rational to someone else. So I, 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 
I, I, I take exception to the framing. Um, <laughs> as a true Washingtonian, right? I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to reframe the question and answer the question <laughs> and answer because that's what we do here. Amazing. Um, so that's number one. Um, and am I ever irrational? I mean, how dare you? Of course <laughs> No, I'm never irrational. Um, I, I mean, I'm irrational all the time, and I just it, it, there are too many stories to to um, to recount. But I often find myself doing things that even I stand back and say, "Well, that made no sense." Um, <laughs> what are you going to do? Right? You just kind of laugh about it and you move on and try to do something that actually makes sense. And, <laughs> You have to give yourself grace. I think that, you know, the world is so serious and and so um, challenging at times that I I find that a little bit of of off kilter behavior that um, that one might exhibit is is not necessarily a bad thing because causes you to take that step back and say, all right, Diana, (laughs) you know, let's try to get it together. I, I feel like those those moments, I don't know, maybe they could, like you said, they can lead to some sort of insights, you know, like, wait a second, why did I do that? Why did that, why did that just happen? That makes no sense. They can, they absolutely can. And sometimes, and I don't want, I don't want to give the impression that I'm always so self-reflective and like, <laughs> sometimes I am, sometimes I'm self-reflective, sometimes I'm reflective of other people and sometimes I'm not, right? And sometimes I just take it as, that made no sense. And I'm too tired to try and figure out why I did that thing mm-hmm. right now. I'm just not even going to deal with it. Right. And, mm-hmm. and I have those moments too. Thank you. All right. Last question. How long does it take for you to initiate an engaging conversation at a social event with only strangers? What are your go-to conversation starting strategies in those scenarios? Uh, uh, not long. Um, you know, I, I'm pretty social when I want to be, you know, when I don't want to be, I'm not, but, um, not long. And, and I, I usually engage on, um, something someone is wearing or something I overheard as I was walking up or, you know, something personal that, um, that makes a connection. I never, never begin an engagement talking about some serious you know, topic of the day, right? Because mm. especially if they're strangers, why would they engage with me? And and why would I engage with them on those serious topics of the day, right? Um, I don't know that they, they want to know my opinion um, or that I want to share it, right? But yeah. but um, the necklace that you're wearing that's, that's pretty that I might want to have, right? Where'd you get yeah. it? <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, so I, I typically engage and engage on, um, you know, something something that we're doing or looking at or, you know, that you're wearing or the glass of wine that you have. What, what did you get? Right. So it's some, something like that. Dr. Brill, do people in Washington, D.C. talk more about politics? Do you think that other places where you've lived like is D.C. Uh, will that conversation turn to politics more quickly or easily than it would outside of Washington, D.C.? These days, not necessarily because okay. everything is so, you know, hostile. Um, yeah. 
But in in other years and other situations, kind of the pre pandemic y times, um, yes, things would turn to to politics a little bit more, but not necessarily not necessarily the politics of the day that are at the top of the news feed, right? Okay. Because you know many of the people here are engaged in some of the other policy issues that are kind of keep going um, that aren't necessarily the headline. So there, there might be talk about that, but certainly more than, than in other places. It's a, there is a bubble around the beltway. (laughs) um, Dr. Burley, thank you so much for joining us. Now, if our listeners want to connect with you, um, particularly if they wanted to get in touch with you about the cyber unicorn project, what's a way that they can do that? So um, you can reach out to Cyber Florida about the Cyber Unicorn Project, or okay. you can send me email. Um, and my email address is just dburley at american.edu. And uh, you can also look, look me up on the, you know, on the search if you can't remember that um, email address. But happy to engage with everyone. Um, these are important topics, and uh, I'm always interested in hearing people's perspectives. And, and so um, reach out. Love to chat. Thank you very much, Dr. Burley. Thank you. Kaylee, I think our listeners want to know, did Dr. Burley pass the lifestyle polygraph? I don't think anyone will be surprised to know that, of course, she passed. She passed with <laughs> flying colors. <laughs> she, yeah, she could, be the, she could be the leader in the administration. Exactly. Of the team. Exactly. Uh, all right. Well, another question. What did you learn today, Kaylee? I learned that... In order to truly overcome the barriers to teaching and changing human behavior, um, you not only have to make a personal connection, you also have to include a bit of yourself in that as well um, and really be willing to open yourself up to listening, to uh, not believing that any sort of resistance is just equal to outright defiance or ignorance. I really loved that. And I, I learned um, in the escape room question about this, this idea, it's good to have artist or musician who is someone who, who may be aligned more with rule breaking or creativity, but that it still is important to have that counterbalance with someone who is a rule follower and to let those two interact. And I think, you know, probably for many of us, we don't have just one of those roles in our professional or social relationships. I know there are definitely times when I'm the equivalent of the artist or the musician, <laughs> And there's definitely times when I am the rule follower and I, mm-hmm. and I, I can point to exactly who the artist or the musician equivalent mm-hmm. is who's on my team. Um, Absolutely. Or I'm on their team, as the case might be. So for the entire No Password Required team, I'm Jack Clabby. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk again soon. Thank you for listening to the No Password Required podcast. You can find us on social media at No Password Pod. Please remember to rate review, and subscribe to the No Password Required podcast. And if you know someone who might like it, please share it with them. The show is produced by Cyber Florida. And a special thank you goes out to our friends at Carlton Fields. If you'd like to learn more, visit our website, cyberflorida.org slash pod. All opinions expressed by the No Password Required podcast participants are their own and do not exclusively represent the views and opinions of Cyber Florida.